want to invite you to have a seat this morning. As you do, let me just introduce myself. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and we are working through uh, the epistle to the Hebrews. And so I want to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and turn to page 1190. As you do, we'll dismiss Hubtown Kids, ages uh, uh, up to, is it, uh, I've I've gotten confused now. We've got the Blue Station, which is three to five, that's what it is. Blue Station, three to five, exiting this way. Gray Station, age six up to fifth grade, exiting this way. The Blue Station this this morning will be looking at this idea of uh, Jesus and his passion there in Gethsemane. They're going to be looking at this story called The Dark Night in the Garden, <clears throat> the temptation that Jesus faced there. The Grace Station will be answering this question. Should those who have faith in Jesus Christ seek their salvation through works or anything else? What a great, great question for us to look at this morning, and we'll, we will do so briefly just by reading the answer. Should those who have faith in Christ seek their own salvation through works or anything else? What's the answer? No. Everything necessary to salvation is found in Christ. What a wonderful truth that our children are going to be learning this morning. As I regularly challenge you, I want to invite you to, again this morning, uh, to uh, if, you, if you see a kid in your life group or uh, passing through the hallways, be sure to ask them what the question was today. If you don't remember, it's in the loop. And uh, the answer is as well, and so you can grade them on that. So we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 5 this morning particularly reading and and studying through verses 1 through 10. Verses 1 through 10. Last uh, time we looked at Hebrews, we we preached the last few verses of chapter 4. There on page 1189. This morning we're looking at 1190, so the first 10 verses there. Uh, This last time we uh, we began this shorter uh, sub-series called The High Priest. And last last time it was part 1, and this week it's part 2. So Hebrews chapter 5 verses 1 through 10. We've exited a little bit of exhortation, and now we've got a little bit of Christology that we're going to look at this morning. This is what the Word of God says. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with their ignorance and, and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he said also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of of Melchizedek. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we do come to you now, quickly, humbly, and we ask that you do what only you can do. Do you allow us to see Jesus more clearly this morning? 
We know that this is your will for us. You've told us that clearly. And just by the nature of this book, we see clearly that that is your plan. And so with hope, we open our eyes, we give you our attention, and we ask that you do, again, what only you can do. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. As we've already seen, Jesus is the appointed son. That's sort of been the main agenda, the main focus of the first four chapters. Now, there's many things that have been said in those first four chapters, but that's the main thing that's been established, that Jesus is the appointed son. Today, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. He's the king. He rules in the place of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. This morning, we'll see ever more clearly that he has also been appointed great high priest. In the first verses this morning, we see four requirements of being a high priest. We're going to look at those briefly. The four main uh, requirements, or maybe you could say characterizations of a high priest. We'll highlight one at the end. Then we'll jump into an explanation of how Jesus is actually the great high priest and not just a high priest, but why he is called the high priest. And then we'll end with a revisitation of that main idea that Jesus has been appointed by God and why that's so important that he's been appointed. But first, let's further work to understand what it means to be a high priest. First, in order to be a high priest, you must be human. You must be human. The scriptures say in chapter 5, verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. A priest had to be human. Why? Well, simply put, he had to identify with the people. He had to be one of the ones that he was to represent. If you think about it, that may be an obvious idea that they had to be human, but there's never been a biblical priest that was not human. It's interesting. As incredible as they are, as powerful and supernatural as they are, no angel, regardless of their supernatural power or high station, could actually serve as the high priest between God and man. Couldn't happen. The nature of the work required them to be human. They represented the people of God to God and God to the people. That's precisely why Jesus took on flesh. The scriptures say that he had to become like us in every respect. He had to dwell among us. The eternal son of God could not operate for you as a high priest unless he were, in addition to his divinity, human. It's a necessity. He became man in order to become a priest. Last week we looked at what a priest does. And we'll look at it briefly again and expand upon that. He has to be human, but he has to also be priestly. Priestly. What does it mean to be priestly? Well, let's look at verse, uh, five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 again. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to do what? to act on behalf of men in relation to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. A priest had to be priestly. They had to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And in these particular days, the days of this writing and long before and even long after, one could not simply approach God to negotiate for one's own sin, not in the religion of Judaism. 
A way to God had to have been prescribed, and it was prescribed. It was clearly given to the children of Israel. It was through the tabernacle that would be maintained by a human priest that they could approach God. In other words, he was the mediator. He was the point of contact. Now, his most important task as a high priest was to make the yearly sacrifice, as we talked about last uh, or two weeks ago, on the Day of Atonement. He would take two goats from the congregation of the people, and one would be sacrificed and offered in the tabernacle as a cleansing of, for the people's sins. And the other, Aaron would take his hands and he would place it on the head of this goat, and he would confess the sins of the people. Anything that they had sinned, anything that had happened that year, he would confess it on the, the head of this goat. Then they would take that goat and they would release it out of the camp, out of the village, away from the people, outside of the city, and it would bear the people's sins outside of the camp. It would bear the sins of the people and die alone, rejected, forsaken. His most important task, conveniently, that Day of Atonement work, corresponded with man's most greatest need, and that is atonement for our sin. Payment for our sin. The work of the priest. It's interesting what it says here about this particular high priest and every high priest before Jesus. Before a high priest could make a sin offering for the people, before he could do that whole uh, scenario with the two goats and one being sacrificed there and it's, it's blood on the altar and the other out in the wilderness to be rejected and to die alone, he would first have to make a sacrifice for himself. The scriptures allowed for that and gave him a provision. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 6 and, and uh, all the way down to 11, but I'll just read 6 and 11. Aaron shall take the bull, that first high priest, he shall take the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. He's a priest. He helped the children of Israel to relate to God and to communicate with God to approach him and vice versa. God's message coming through the priest. This pathway opened up, constricted as it was, they could come to God. And yet, one of the many benefits of having a human priest is that they can do their job sympathetically. If you think about the, the first two descriptions or pieces of information that we know about the high priest, first, they had to be human, and second, they had to go and interact with, for people on behalf of, uh, or relate to God. And it's interesting how dangerous and Struggle, how much of a struggle that can actually be for us sometimes. Sometimes it's difficult for us when we see the, the holiness of God for us to not think sympathetically or relate to people sympathetically. Or sometimes we can relate to people's sins and other people's weaknesses so much that we can forget about the holiness of God. It's easy for a high priest to come off that way, and so that's why it's so important that a high priest be a human that is also beset with the weaknesses that the, same, that the people that he's relating to God for and on behalf of. Verse 2 says he can deal gently, the high priest can, because he's a human, because he's a man chosen from the people, because he's interacting with God on their behalf, 
And because he's beset with weakness, it says, he can deal gently. He can deal sympathetically. Verse 3 says, because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. It would be easy for him as he confesses the sins of the people on the head of that goat for him to be thinking how terrible a person they actually are, how wayward a group of people they actually are. And that's why in God's providence, he allows him to first or commands that he first sacrifice on his own behalf so that he can be reminded of his own sinfulness and the provision that God has given for him. He was there to make sacrifice for sin to a holy God, and that sin included his own. And so he had to be sympathetic. The reality is impatience, disgust, resentment, they have no part in the priestly ministry that the high priest was called to. And we see that in our Lord and Savior. There is no disgust or impatience or even resentment. But it's his kindness as our high priest that leads us to repentance to where we can actually enjoy atonement that has been offered. Again, this is one reason why Jesus became man. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 said, say, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. In this way, he is helped to become merciful because he is like us in every way. Not that long ago, I gave you a statement that I didn't come up with. It's an ancient statement that goes like this. That which is not assumed cannot be redeemed. That which is not assumed cannot be redeemed. It's a phrase or a statement that was employed against those who thought that Jesus only appeared to be a man and that he actually couldn't become a man because that would in some way taint him, which is a heresy. He did become a man and he was surrounded with weakness and experienced it himself. And in that way, he is sympathetic. We looked at that two weeks ago, Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So not only must he be a man, a human, but he's gotta be priestly, And he's got to be sympathetic. But there's something else that we see in these first few verses, particularly in verse 4, and that is he has to be appointed. Look at verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. The office of high priest is, is not one for which a person can actually sign up. Yesterday, we took Riley to a a job fair of sorts, and they cast vision for this particular task that he could spend the rest of his life doing, and he was a little bit interested. And Maybe the invitation went to him, and he thought, I should sign up for this. When we hear about high priests this morning, some of you are thinking, perhaps, oh, you have to be a human. I'm a human. 
Oh, you, you have to do priestly things. I would be willing to enter, to go between God and man and, and uh, bring communication there and represent people on behalf of, uh, uh, of God and God on behalf of people. And maybe some of you are even thinking, I'm sympathetic. I'm a sinful person. I've been forgiven of much. Perhaps I could be a high priest. Well, there's no place to sign up. Why? Because you can't sign up to be a high priest. You can't set your, your goal to become a high priest. You have to be appointed. You have to be appointed. So we see in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, speaking, God speaking, he says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, We see clearly there, God has chosen a people. He's given clear instructions and he says, you will be priests to me. God chose Aaron. God chose chose his sons. He chose that lineage. Here's the point. The position of high priest, it springs from God's will, not human desire. There's a lot of angles to that statement right there that we could glance at and meditate on. Think about that. The position of high priest, that great work of high priest, it comes from God's will, not human's desire. God introduced that position. And any high priest after Aaron, he had to be called by God. He had to be considered by God true and trustworthy to serve as a representative for God to the people. And the people to God. One commentary was really helpful for me this week as it pointed out uh, a structure, a poetical structure, uh, an an instrument used to bring emphasis to uh, the main idea. And it was also used uh, for memorizing. And uh, this particular structure is called a, I I think it's called a chiasm or yeah, yeah, chiasm. I, I don't remember how to say that word. I'm not very fancy. But here's the idea. I'll, I'll get really simple for you. It's like beef wellington. Anybody ever, ever had beef wellington? That's well, nothing fancy. But beef wellington is a fillet of steak. And it's cooked a little bit, and then it has some outer seasonings on it. There's some goodies that are, 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 are wrapped in this, uh, around this fillet of steak, of beef. And then that is placed into a puff pastry. That sounds pretty good. And that's wrapped up real nicely, covered in butter with some more seasonings. And it's baked to perfection. And when you get a slice of beef wellington, you look at it from the side and you can see in the center, the the point of this meal is the filet. It's the beef. And everything around it is kind of drawing attention to what's in the center. If you were to take a cross cut of beef wellington after you'd taken that slice and put it on your plate, you'd see on the outsides, both to the left and to the right, are that puff pastry. Just on the inside, on the left and on the right, then you would see some flavorings and some seasonings and some herbs. And then as you went even closer into the center to the very heart of this dish is the filet. And again, it's not called puff pastry wellington. It's called beef wellington. If you were to zoom out on these 10 verses, there's a little bit of a Christological beef wellington here. In verse 1, we see the old office of high priest introduced. And in verse 10, you see the new office, the high priest. 
the new high priest, the great high priest. Again, in verse one, you see the sacrifice offered by the high priest. In verse nine, you see the sacrificial provision given by the new high priest. And we continue to work our way to the center. What will be the center? What's the main idea of this text? What's the point? Well, we see the weakness of the high priest in in verses two and three. And then we see the suffering of the new priest in verses seven and eight. And now we get to the very center of this text. And that is in verse four, the appointment, the establishment of this office of high priest. And then verses five and six, we see the appointment of Christ, the new high priest. You see, the preacher is moving on here in this book, in this sermon. He's moving on to help establish a new theme. And he actually goes back to where he began. Psalm chapter two, verse seven. You are my son. You're begotten of me. You're the same essence as me, Jesus is, the father says. But then he, he backs up and he says there in, in chapter five, he repeats Psalm 2, 7, you are my son. But then he introduced Psalm 110, verse four. You are a priest forever. You are my son, yes, but you are also a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, he's explored the authority of the son, and now he begins to help us explore and take us along to explore the appointment of the priest. Up until this point, we've understood a little bit more about what it takes to become a high priest. Most importantly, you have to be appointed. And we saw that these four characteristics were true of Aaron, and now they're also true of Jesus, this new high priest who has been appointed. But there's ways in which we see through this text that Jesus is not just your ordinary run-of-the-mill priest. He's not just your ordinary run-of-the-mill high priest. Why has God appointed Jesus to be the great high priest. Well, here in this text, we have three reasons clearly given to us that will be, further, will be introduced here and further expounded upon in the next five chapters. Three reasons Jesus is considered the great high priest. Here's the, here they are, the first of the three. One, Aaron sympathized with our sin. Jesus sympathized with our temptation. Aaron sympathized with our sin. Jesus sympathized with our temptation. Look at verse two again. He, speaking of Aaron or, or any high priest for that matter, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. The word beset, it's the same word used of uh, the relationship that you would have with a millstone if it were to be wrapped around your neck and you were to be thrown into the water, which was, was apparently an often or a regular punishment for, for certain criminals. Beset with weakness means to be surrounded by weakness to the point where you cannot escape. That same word used of 
the millstone being around your neck, being beset with a millstone, is also used of the great cloud of witnesses that we are beset by even now. And the idea there, too, is that we are completely surrounded. We can't escape. We can't hide from these witnesses. They are observing the way that we act right now, the saints who have gone before. And not just the saints, but the heavenly realm. We are beset by them. We cannot escape them. We are encircled by them. That's the idea here. And Aaron knew that he also was beset with weakness. He was beset with humanity. He was beset with temptation, unable to escape. And what did he need in response to that? This high priest himself needed a sacrifice. And in that way, he can sympathize with us. He is weak like us. The reality is, though, that Jesus is also encircled with weakness. He's also encircled by temptation. But the reality, the additional reality is that he did not respond in the same way as Aaron did, even though he, too, was surrounded with weakness. For that matter, Adam responded differently. Jesus responded differently than Adam. Adam, also surrounded by weakness, surrounded by temptation, acted differently than Jesus. He gave in to his temptation. Aaron gave in to his temptation, and they needed a sacrifice. Jesus is the exact opposite. It's wonderful to think about. Adam was tempted in a garden, and he failed obedience. He was not obedient to God the Father in that first garden, and because of that, he was removed It's interesting, Jesus was also tempted in a garden. He was tempted to disobey God the Father. But the scriptures tell us that he, through suffering, learned obedience. Through suffering, he learned obedience. What does it mean that he learned obedience? Can Jesus really learn something? Well, the truth is he actually can. In his humanity, the scriptures say that he increased in wisdom, in stature and in favor with God and man. And that's kind of the idea that we hear and see here. He learned obedience. That means that the son said yes to the father in an extreme situation that he hadn't previously encountered. He was proved in that new temptation that he hadn't previously experienced there in the garden as he prayed that the will of the father would pass, the cup would pass. He learned obedience Verse 15 in chapter 4 says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every respect, again, was tempted as we are, and yet he was and is without sin. Aaron sympathizes with our sinfulness, also receiving a sacrifice for himself. Jesus only sympathizes with us in our temptation. And because of that, because of that reality, number two is also true. We see here that helps us to see that Jesus is indeed the great high priest and it's fitting. Why? Because Aaron needed a sacrifice, number two. Aaron needed a sacrifice and Jesus was the sacrifice. The high priest had to offer a special sacrifice for himself and for his household before he could even offer those offerings that God had called him to do. 
And in this regard, the Old Testament reads, Aaron again shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to sacrifice the bull for his own sin offering. John chapter one, verse 29 says, the next day Jesus, or John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus did not need a lamb like Aaron did. Jesus was the lamb. Do you notice that? Aaron was shedding the blood of an animal while Jesus was shedding his own. And that's the the parallel that we see in the structure of this text. The high priest offers sacrifices and Jesus offers prayers through tears. Where do we see that taking place? Well, it says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. He was heard because of his reverence. This is a reference to his time there in the garden as he prays to the Father through great anguish, trouble and fear. Father, not your will. Could you let this cup pass? Nevertheless, whatever you will. And then on the path to the cross, even there on the cross, the prayers, the cries, the tears, the blood, the pain, all of these things are offerings in a sense, are summaries of that offering of his very life being snuffed out. It's a reference to his passion. Philippians chapter two, verses five to 11 say this, that we're to have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What sort of mind is it like? What is available to us? How can we operate in this manner? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. No, he emptied himself by by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to the point of death. And what sort of death? Old age? Some sort of painless disease? No, to the shameful, painful death on a cross. And how did the father respond to this? To the offering that he made through cries and tears, prayers being made. How did the father respond? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus called out to the Father and he was heard and he was saved because of his obedient reverence to the Father. Think about that. How do we know that Jesus' sacrifice for you is actually viable, that it's actually doable, that that it would account and work and accomplish something? How do we know? Because his righteous life was demonstrated through his victorious resurrection. It says that he was heard. He was saved, not saved from death necessarily. 
in a temporary sense, but saved from death. The Holy One that the Father did not allow to see corruption. He didn't stay dead. His purity of life, his righteous obedience, his reverence for the Father was demonstrated by his resurrection. We know that his cries were answered because now he ever lives to make intercession for you. Jesus was heard. Jesus was answered by the Father because of his own reverence. In a sense, because of his own obedience and righteous life. And can I ask you, how will you be saved? Think about that for just a second. I said not that long ago that man's greatest need is forgiveness of sins. A right relationship, reconciliation between us and God. That's our greatest need. And if that's true, and if it's true that you are saved through your obedient reverence to God and you don't have it, how will you be saved? You say, well, I'll call out myself. I'll call out in my own name and I'll try to amass my own obedient reverence and it'll be less than Jesus's, but it, it, it may still be some. And the reality is that will not save you. There's an extension, there's a promise that's given to us that we can be saved, but not by calling out to God in our own name, leaning into our own righteous obedience, our own reverence. No, that is not how we'll be saved. You'll be saved if you call out in the name of Christ, claiming his righteous life, his obedient life, and his sacrifice in his death. And if you call in his name, you too can experience that resurrection life, not just to look forward to, but even now. And so how can you be saved? How will you be saved? Only through obedient reverence and that of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the great high priest. Let's think about that first great high priest. I want you to think about the day of atonement. I want you to think about the day that you've been waiting for all year long. You're aware of your shortcomings. You're aware of the fact that you've disobeyed God. You've broken his laws in big ways and in small ways. You go to bed the night before, blow the candle out, maybe not even able to sleep. Will Aaron sacrifice correctly? That bull, will he be prepared? Will he be able to accomplish what needs to be accomplished? Will God accept the blood offering of that first goat? Or will he not? Morning dawns, you strap your sandals on. As you make your way down towards the tabernacle, depending on what time you're in, maybe the temple, you get there early, and you begin to Observe from a distance, smell the smells, hear the sounds, those of atonement. You see Moses, or, uh, Aaron come out of the tabernacle and he grabs the second goat. He confesses the sins. In that moment, you're looking on from a distance and you say, he's confessing my sins. God, my sins are on that goat. And Aaron takes the goat and 
leads it out into the wilderness and it runs out. Imagine the feeling that night that you'd have. With your faith placed in this provision that God has made for us that your sins can actually be forgiven. Imagine the the joy that you would experience, the weight being lifted off of your shoulders as you remember and meditate on that sight, the goat disappearing in the wilderness horizon. But then imagine the next day, you wake up again, the joy in your heart because of what has happened the day before, but now fear comes back into your heart again. Why? Because you know the same heart that sinned as it did the year before is the same heart that you still have even now and you'll continue to sin and you'll continue to need another sacrifice. You'll continue to need another day of atonement perpetually. And this is how we begin to see the third and final way that Jesus is better than Aaron and that Jesus truly is the great high priest. Number three, Aaron was temporary. Jesus is eternal. The work that Aaron accomplished only pictured and in part was effective where Jesus is is eternal. At the end of that day of atonement, longing would set in again, waiting for that next day, 364 days, 363 days. Aaron completed the task just as God has instructed and yet he would need to repeat it year after year after year. And then Aaron would die and his sons would take his place and they would die. Somebody would take their place and on down the line into perpetuity. They died. They were temporary. Their sacrifice, not effective. Hebrews chapter one, verses three through four We looked at a few months ago. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. After making purification for sins, he sat down. In just a few months, we'll look again This idea that Jesus makes one sacrifice for all time and again sits down. It's what we see in verse 9. In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. One commentary had some thoughts on that word perfect. Be helpful just to read them to you. Rather than conveying the idea of overcoming a moral deficiency, the aorist passive participle uh, is translated as once made perfect. But it communicates the concept of finishing or completing. Finishing or completing. The end is in mind in that word perfect. Perfect coming to the end of the journey, finishing the task. Jesus is made perfect. The 
work that he does as high priest is finished. It's come to an end. And this is why on the cross he declared this very word. It is finished. It's come to the end. It's done. It's over. I am the great high priest. And Father, I've done what you've called me, what you've sent me to do. Verse 9 goes on to say he became the source of eternal salvation. Not yearly, not weekly, not for a time period of maybe even extending to a life, but for all eternity. Jesus' salvation is made available to all who obey him, to all who put their faith in him. It's further seen in the word, or the name rather, Melchizedek, which we'll see in a few weeks, points to this idea that Jesus, the great high priest, will have no end. He ever lives to intercede for us, to be our high priest with no beginning and no end. That's the idea tied up in that name. His salvation is eternal. That's why he's a great high priest. He's a great high priest because he doesn't need a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And he's the great high priest because he doesn't sympathize with us in our sin. He sympathizes with us only in our weakness, and he has overcome that. I want us to be very clear here. There is a dangerous misstep that we can take in this passage. And really, as Americans, I think we're, we're, we're kind of privy and prone to make this mistake, especially in this modern era. Or era, I should say. It's also an error. Jesus is a priest. We know that. He's not only just a priest, but he's a high priest. He's not just a high priest, but he is the great high priest. And we can clearly see now why from these three reasons. And there'll be many more that we'll see over the next five chapters and even to the end of this book. And the mistake that we might make is we'll come to this and we'll say, we need to determine who is the great high priest? Who is the best? Who is the highest Who is the most perfect? Who is the most powerful? And we look at this information and we come to our own conclusion, potentially, that Jesus is in fact the great high priest. And maybe there's even some utility in this. And we say maybe to ourselves in our quiet time or to our families or even in life group or to the greater church, it's really cool to see how effective this great high priest has been in my life. I've seen of it, I've tasted of it. And while those things are good and they're true, The point of this passage is not see for yourself, determine for yourself who is the great high priest. The point of this, the accent of this text is on the word appointed. Appointed. You see, it's not your ability to find out who is the most effective or most able-bodied high priest in all of history. That's not your job. That job has already been accomplished. It's already been finished. He has been appointed. God, the Father, has appointed the Son, eternally begotten from him, and now appointed as the great high priest who can accomplish this great work of salvation that is our great need. It's not up to us to determine whether we think it's true or not. It is appointed. And you may say, well, that's basically what I'm doing 
Isn't that the same thing? I'm, I'm seeing the evidence and I'm coming to agree with that. It's different. You see, we're a fickle people. We're a people that believe this sort of thing is the best thing today, but tomorrow this other thing is. One week we pull for this team and the next week we pull for another. One week this is our favorite coffee, the next week this is. We're fickled. It's not for us to determine or to appoint who our great high priest will be. It is up to us to recognize whom God has appointed. In one of his works, C.S. Lewis wrote this, and I think it's really helpful to differentiate and to demonstrate the posture that often we take as modern men and women when we come to God. He says this, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He, man, is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge, man is. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to that. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. You see, it's not up to us to approach God in this sort of manner. Well, let me hear what sort of explanation that you have for why you allow all of these things to take place, not just in the grand theater of what is history, but even in my own life. How in the world could you let these things take place? God, speak for yourself. Give an answer, and I'll let you know what my judgment is. Maybe we're not so brass as to approach God in that way, or we think we're not. And yet in a similar way, when we approach the book of Hebrews, when we approach Christ and we come to him and we ask the question, well, let me see if I think he is a good and righteous high priest. If he truly is the son of God, let me be the one that determines that instead of hearing from the word of God, the mouth of God who has spoken in time past and now he is speaking and he's speaking through his son whom he has appointed our great high priest. The reality is it's not about intelligence. It's not about math. It's about obedience. It's about reverence. It's about receiving from God what he has spoken. Brothers and sisters, that's the main idea this morning. That's the main idea of this short 10 verses. God has appointed Jesus as our high priest, and we're to obey him. That's it. There was a bumper sticker that was pretty common when I was a kid, and I remember thinking it was a snarky, on-the-nose sort of a bumper sticker, and I quite liked it. And then I remember a preacher referencing that, and he nixed off the end, and this is what the bumper sticker said, and then I'll tell you what he brought it down to. But the bumper sticker said this, God, settled, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And I remember that old Baptist pastor referencing that bumper sticker, my ears coming alive, listening. It's challenging for me to, to do that, you can imagine, at my young age. And he said, that's a lovely bumper sticker, but there's too many words in that statement. And I thought, well, which ones would we remove? God said it? 
We've got to leave that. I believe it? Of course that's, that's important. That's, my, that's me. That's my mantra. And that settles it. Of course that can't be removed. And so which one was it? Well, the reality was, that old fundamentalist, he said, the bumper sticker should say this, God said it, and that settles it. God said it, and that settles it. For us, what has God said? He has said that he has appointed Jesus Christ as our great high priest, and we need to obey him. This morning, we're going to take communion. And we don't take communion because we found it to be particularly helpful. That's not why we take it. We don't even take it because it reminds us of certain things, although it does that, but that's not the number one reason. Because it would be possible for you to not find some sort of utility in the table this morning. Reality is there is no new grace for you to experience here. It's not like collect all five or 12 for the year or anything like that. There's nothing new to be received here, but what is up here is a reminder of what God has already done for us, but we don't even mainly do it as a remembrance. We do it because we've been commanded to do it. And now it's interesting. You might say, well, are these two things at odds with one another? Am I not allowed to recognize that Jesus really is the great high priest? He really is the greatest? No, of course you can. But we start with the fact that he's appointed by God. And in the same way, can we be reminded? Can we be encouraged? Can we celebrate as we come to the Lord's table? Absolutely we can. But we don't come to the table because, again, we have found it helpful. We come to the table because we have been commanded to do so. And so let's prepare to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 29 We get some instructions there. This is what the word of God says. For I received from the table what I, or from the Lord, what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And so it goes on to say, let a person examine himself then And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna come to the table. We're gonna receive of it together this morning. But I wanna say this. Communion is for Christians. Communion is for those who are actually believing the gospel. They believe that God is holy. He's so holy that when we see him, we see our wickedness and our own sinfulness. But the gospel doesn't leave us with this great chasm between the holiness of God and our own sinfulness and that relationship that we want to be restored completely broken. No, the gospel is the good news that Jesus lived that perfect life, the life that you did not live and the life that Aaron himself did not live. That Jesus lived that perfect life that was symbolized by that spotless lamb. 
that his blood was shed and he died and that he rose again, symbolizing that God accepted that payment for us on Christ's behalf. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is is demonstrated in the life of a Christian as they turn from that sin that put Jesus on the cross. They agree with God about their own sinfulness and they look to Christ for salvation. If that's you this morning, communion's for you. We encourage those of you, if you're, if you're following the Lord, if you're believing the, the gospel, if you're baptized, if you're committed as a member of the local church, this is for you. And I wanna encourage you to examine your heart Do what the scriptures say. Examine your heart so that you can partake in a worthy manner. I want to talk about that word worthy that we read in 1 Corinthians. What in the world could make you worthy this morning? What what could make you worthy? It might be easier to talk about what could make you unworthy. Sin. Sin makes us unworthy. The scriptures are clear. There's not one person in this room this morning that is not sinful. Not one person. And so we know what can make us unworthy, but what can make us worthy? It's simply this, repentance and faith in Jesus. You say, am I unworthy if I've sinned this week? Not if you're agreeing with God about your sin. And when sin comes to your mind, you're claiming the blood of Christ. If that's you this morning, you've been made worthy. You don't have to do anything You don't have to earn, try to earn anything. That's the lesson our our children are learning this morning in Grace Station. Everything that you need is in Christ. Everything that we need is pictured in these elements. So I want to invite you to take some time and and ask yourself, are you embracing sin this morning or, or, or are you embracing Jesus? Are you agreeing with God about your sinfulness or are you running from it? If you're harboring sin in your life, my call to you this morning would be to repent of it and agree with God about your sinfulness. If you're not repenting of sin, if you're not trusting Jesus for forgiveness, but instead you're holding on to your sin in place of Jesus, I'd ask you to not not join us in the supper. Brothers and sisters, this meal that we're going to partake of in just a moment, it is is a meal that we partake of together. So I want you to think about your own life But I also, before we enjoy, before we come to it together, I want to ask you to consider who's coming to the table with you. And I don't mean like, who are you bringing? Who's sitting next to you? But I want you to really think about it and look around the room, even now. You see, your your time in communion, as Pastor Chris says, is not a turbocharged quiet time. But we're coming to Jesus's table We've all been made one in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're one together in Christ. We're receiving of one cup this morning. And so consider who you're coming to the table with. Are you at odds with them? Is there sin in your life against somebody in the church? Something that you've done against somebody else? Have you been unkind? Have you withheld forgiveness? If that's true of you, before you come to the table, I would ask you, to allow what's pictured as we receive from the table to be realized in your life. That we truly would sit in good harmony and fellowship together at the Lord's table and we would receive and give the mercy that we have.